Hello again. So last time we talked about uh, trauma and how a resuscitation is supposed to flow. This time I want to keep focusing a bit on trauma type stuff, but hone in a little bit more on the orthopedic side of trauma as opposed to like big multi-system trauma patients. Now, I will fully admit I am not the best orthopod of our group. I didn't really get great ortho training. It's always been kind of one of my Achilles heels, which unfortunately I have way more than two of. So I'm going to focus on those things that are a little bit more time sensitive in the orthopedic world, things that are truly emergent. There are not a lot of true orthopedic emergencies. In fact, there are really only five true orthopedic emergencies, and three of them are trauma-related. This is why we don't have orthopods in the department all that often. We see a ton of orthopedic trauma, and they get a lot of business from us, but they're not a lot of time-sensitive orthopedic conditions. That being said, let's dive into the ones that aren't time-sensitive. Now, there's a couple of them that are not really trauma-related, and those are necrotizing soft tissue infections, so like necrotizing fasciitis or myositis, which are rapidly spreading infections that need emergent debridement, OR, and antibiotics. Um, And I'm not going to talk about that today because it's gross. Um, The other time-sensitive orthopedic emergency, which we're also not going to talk about today because it's gross, are septic joints and tendons, right? These also need rapid washout to prevent permanent damage. Um, But nobody wants to talk about that right now. So let's talk about orthopedic trauma emergencies. Now, the things I'm going to talk about are fairly broad topics, and I'm going to leave out all the little details of specific types of fractures because, again, ortho is not my strong suit, and in general, it doesn't really matter. There are several simple things to look for on all traumatic extremity injuries that will be super helpful in ruling out or in true emergencies. So first of all, is the fracture open? Which basically means, are they bleeding or do they have a wound to the extremity that may be broken? So an open fraction occurs when the force of the injury is high enough for the bone to break through the skin. That means the bone is now all exposed to air in the mud puddle the patient flipped their motorcycle into. That can obviously make infection risk considerably higher, leading to osteomyelitis, hardware infections when they go to get uh, repaired, and then other wound healing issues. The faster we can take care of these types of fractures, the better the outcome for the patient. The basic rule is door to antibiotic time of one hour we should be able to identify the vast majority of open fractures without thinking too much about it. Sometimes they're really obvious, like there's a bone sticking directly through the skin. Other times it might be a little bit more subtle, right? It may just be a small laceration or a puncture wound overlying what looks like swelling or a very minor deformity. But regardless, if there's any type of wound near a potential fracture, we need to assess those patients immediately and work on getting antibiotics hung and that wound thoroughly washed out. The antibiotic choice depends on a few factors. We use something called the Gastillo-Anderson classification to determine how bad an open fracture is and what antibiotics that we're gonna throw at that patient. A grade one open fracture uh, means the wound's less than a centimeter with maybe a little bit of crush injury or soft tissue damage and should be a fairly clean wound. Grade two open fractures are greater than a centimeter. They'll have some crush injury, but no significant soft tissue damage and maybe somewhat dirty or contaminated. The good news is, is that for antibiotic choice, which is primarily our job in the emergency department, we don't have to worry too much about the difference between grade one and two. They both get ANSEF or clindamycin if they're allergic. So any relatively small, somewhat contaminated wound gets ANSEF. 
grade three open fractures are basically fractures with extensive soft tissue damage, bones and muscles hanging everywhere and caked in like cow manure. We further categorize these into bad, really bad, and holy sh based on damage to muscles, fascia, neurovascular supply, etc. But again, for my purposes, it doesn't really matter. These all get ANSEF plus gentamicin. One additional factor is what type of contamination does the wound have? If it happened in like soil, so farming soil or something like that, then we need to give Zosin instead of ANSEF. Uh, or sometimes people just add on a penicillin onto the ANSEF and the gentamicin. If it happened in water, so like boat propeller accidents, they need to add Cipro or use a broader cephalosporin like cefepime, something that'll cover pseudomonas. We don't have salt water in Montana, so I'm going to skip that one. If we don't order antibiotics within five minutes of walking out of these patients' room, please come slap us and remind us. You can't hang antibiotics in an hour if you don't have an order from yours truly. That brings me to the next major question for all orthopedic injuries is, is there neurovascular compromise? So whether the fracture is open or closed in this situation doesn't really matter. With any fracture or dislocation, orthopedic injury in general, we need to ensure that there's good neurovascular function distal to the injury. With most fractures, this can be as simple as checking a distal pulse or capillary refill. If there aren't pulses distally or capillary refill sluggish, then emergent reduction is absolutely necessary. There can also be fractures with what we call skin tinting. So this usually means that when you look at the fracture, it looks like it's just about to poke right through the dermis, like a fraction of an inch. These are obviously bad for a couple of reasons. One, if it does poke through the skin, it's suddenly an open fracture, which is never ideal. And two, that bone is putting so much pressure on that portion of skin from the inside that it probably is cutting off blood supply to that area of tissue. If that goes on for too long, that patch of skin may become necrotic and slough off even days later, and again, turns this into an open fracture, which is bad. If they have a splint over that, when that happens, we may not even notice for several days. Because the skin over the fracture site is now dead, the wound healing will become a major issue, right? Finally, we need to check neurofunction below the injury. Can the patient move this extremity, fingers, toes, etc.? Sometimes... If they can't, this may be due to just stretching of the nerves and not complete rupture, but it's really tough to know that immediately. And this isn't one of those things where we get to spend an hour gathering RT and moving to the ideal room and farting around trying to prepare to reduce this fracture. Put this in the same category as, hey, we're going to intubate bed 12 or the stroke in bed 10 needs TPA. It really is that level of urgency that we need to reduce these fractures. Time is tissue, and that principle holds true whether we're talking about a STEMI, a stroke, or a limb without pulses. And this includes um, hip and knee dislocations, right? So even if they have or appear to have good neurovascular function distally, they still need emergent reduction. Hip dislocations cut off blood supply to the femoral head, and if they're out for too long, the femoral head essentially will die, right? And with knee dislocation, the posterior fragment tends to put a lot of pressure on the popliteal artery. It can cause dissections and occlusions inside the artery. So getting pressure off as soon as possible is actually really important, even if they appear to have good blood flow distally. Luckily, most you know, uh, knee dislocations will just flop back in on their own is without much effort because they're so unstable. So at least we have that going for us. 
The last orthopedic emergency is compartment syndrome. Now, admittedly, this is essentially an issue of neurovascular compromise, although it's not because of the fracture deformity of the bone. It's a swelling or bleeding issue with subsequent perfusion problems. This can happen from fractures, right, or crush injuries with soft tissue damage, burns, DVTs, and even from laying on a limb for an extended period of time and developing like a focal rhabdo to that muscle. It's actually becoming more common in those with minor injuries who are on anticoagulants as well. They just bleed profusely into a muscle compartment. So we really do need to be thinking about this even in minor trauma. Basically, what happens is there's swelling, bleeding, or external compression on a muscle compartment. And these don't stretch well because the fascial covering isn't stretchy, right? When the pressure starts to rise, at first it decreases venous return, which causes more swelling. The increased pressure then leads to decreased capillary perfusion and eventually decreased arteriole flow. However, the pressure rarely gets high enough to actually limit systolic arterial pressure. So these patients usually have a pulse until really late in the game. When the muscle and nerve tissue no longer have capillary flow, this leads to tissue necrosis, which causes more tissue damage, which leads to more swelling and increased pressure, et cetera, et cetera. So it just compounds on itself until we do something about it or until the limb dies. So hopefully the former. So what do we look for to diagnose compartment syndrome? Because it is difficult and we do miss this diagnosis a lot more than we want to. We talk about the six P's, which frankly are kind of dumb, but pain, pallor, paresthesias, paresis, pulselessness, and polkilothermia, which means coldness. So pain, which again, this is kind of stupid because most fractures, burns, major swelling events really actually hurt, right? But this pain is different. This is pain that really is uncontrollable, right? Most fractures, if you keep the limbs still, they may have some aching. They may say it hurts, but it's not 10 out of 10 pain until they try to move it, right? Compartment syndrome is 10 out of 10 pain all the time, regardless of what we do. It's essentially an ischemic limb. It hurts no matter what is going on. It may get worse if you push on it or if they try to move it, but it will always be very severe unless the patient is altered, in which case they can't tell you if it hurts, right? The other things we talk about are really late findings, right? So things that we actually don't want to have happen. And if they do, that's a bad sign, right? Because um, this is really like once capillary perfusion is down and tissue necrosis is actually happening, right? The limb gets pale because there's not much perfusion. It's numb and it's weak because the nerves aren't getting any blood flow. And then it becomes pulseless and cold, much like an actual acute ischemic limb. But since it happened more slowly, the damage is actually harder to reverse. If we want to determine whether a patient has compartment syndrome or not, we check compartment pressures. Now this entails sticking a needle into each compartment in the concerning area and measuring a pressure. We can do this with a striker, which is specifically designed to detect compartment, uh, to check compartment syndromes. Now I've never actually used a striker and not broken it in some way because I'm a clumsy ogre. So I just use an art line setup now because I can't break it. And then admin isn't mad at me. It accomplishes the same goal. It measures a pressure. They both work the same way. You just set up the art line, um, in the same way you normally would. We zero it before we enter the skin, you enter the compartment, inject like 
0.3 mLs of normal saline, and it should read a steady pressure that'll come up right on your art line reading or on your monitor. Anything over 30 is considered abnormal. However, if the patient is sick, so like a hypotensive trauma patient, or a septic patient that was found down and is in hypotensive and in shock, the absolute pressure of 30 doesn't help nearly as much, right? Their perfusion is bad despite the swelling in the limb, so it doesn't take much pressure in that limb to cause compartment syndrome. So we can also use a delta pressure, which is the diastolic blood pressure minus the compartment pressure. If that's less than 30, that also indicates compartment syndrome and poor tissue perfusion. The treatment for this is a fasciotomy. This is where a surgeon, so at our shop, it's going to be an orthopedic surgeon, fillets open all of the compartments in that part of the limb to try to relieve that pressure. Remember, because these patients have significant tissue necrosis, they're at really high risk for rhabdomyolysis, subsequent kidney damage, hyperkalemia. So they need labs drawn. They need to be rechecked. They need fluids, medications as indicated, right? We have to treat the whole patient as well. All right. Uh, so that about covers the reasons we call orthopedic surgeons into the department and how to best evaluate and manage orthopedic trauma. At some point, we're going to do a splinting procedure lab because that's the next step in how we manage orthopedic trauma. And it's an important part of the patient, the treatment that the patient gets in the ED. And there's a lot of things we can do to improve patient outcomes by applying good splints in a lot of ways that we can hurt patients by applying bad ones. So we're going to talk about that at some point in time. All right. As always, thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed it.